0: We have been looking at the beginning of the early church, uh, the Book of Acts. We have seen how the Holy Spirit empowered the early believers. We saw how it set them apart for of a special purpose that God had for them, and it gave, and, and the Holy Spirit gave them the ability uh, to communicate a message. And then we saw that these individuals were living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And because they were living under the influence of the Holy Spirit, there was some evidence of that in their life. There was verification, there was proof that the Holy Spirit indeed was alive. And one of those was that they began proclaiming the wonders of God to the people at large. And Peter, in response to the the questions, explains the meaning of the Holy Spirit and explains what it means to to that crowd then and what it means to us today. But along that line, Peter then does something interesting, something profound, something that puts the focus back where it needs to be. He then begins to proclaim the gospel. He begins to announce the gospel in that context in which they found themselves. Today, we continue our study and great expectations that God has for his church in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. And we will look at these words under the heading, We have a great message to proclaim. And as we read these words this morning... And we look at the message that the early disciples proclaimed, that the early church proclaimed, it is my hope, it is my prayer, this will become the message we proclaim. This will be the message that we as a church are all about. So open your Bibles as we look at Acts chapter 2, 22 to 36, and listen to how Luke describes it. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God. But you know I can't. Because there's so much that we need to explain. There's so much we need to understand. You see, if this message has become our message, we need to make sure we understand it. We need to make sure we grasp what it's all about. So I'm going to give you four truths of the gospel message as revealed in this passage. The first thing, we proclaim that Jesus was a man. We proclaim that Jesus was a man. Notice how Peter states it. He said, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man. He was a man. Just like you and I are, are men or are women, just like we're humans, Jesus was a man. He had a history, he had a background, he had a life that he lived. Much like we live lives, Jesus was a man. We know from history, we know from tradition that Jesus was a carpenter. By trade, For 30 years of his life, he lived as a carpenter. He only had three years of public ministry, but he had 33 years of ministry, but only three years was public. He was a man, he was a carpenter, and I'm sure just like other carpenters, his body was tired. Yesterday, I, I helped Ken or do some work at my house, and I saw a carpenter get weary, not me, him. I was tired too, but you know, he was much more tired than I was. The point is, your body ache. You get tired. I'm sure that Jesus experienced that just like any other person would experience that. His body got tired, his body got sore. He was a man. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, uh, he he wanted people to understand that he was a man. He says, this morning that we proclaim, we have seen him. We have touched him. We've looked upon him. We have have heard him. We have felt him in our hands. He was a man. He says, "In, in contrast to what some people say, that he was a phantom, he was a spirit. John wants us to know, no, he was a physical person that we could touch. That we can see. In every form, in every way imaginable, Jesus was a man. And because Jesus was a man, he's able to relate to us. He's able to understand us. He knows what you go through, he knows what I go through. He had some of the same experiences that you experienced. The Bible says he was tempted in every way that you've been tempted, but yet he's without sin. The point that Peter's trying to say, he was a real life individual. But there was something different about this man. Notice what else that Peter says. Yes, Jesus of Nazareth is a man accredited by God. Now we understand this idea of being credited. Uh, accreditation means that, that an, outside, an outside source has affirmed you. An outside source has accredited you. When, when we went to college or we went to school, we wanted to go to an accredited university. And what that means, that university, some outside standard has evaluated that university, said, yes, you can get a good education here. Yes, this is an acceptable place. So with Jesus, he was accredited, not by himself, but he was accredited by God himself. In other words, God says, I approve of, I'm accrediting Jesus Christ. He's authentic, he's real, you can count on him. That's what it means when it says that he was accredited by God himself. Now, how did God approve of him? How did God accredit him? He tells us in this passage. He was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. So, God worked through Jesus these miracles, these wonders, and these signs. That's how he accredited it. He proved it by working through Jesus. Peter is clear that God worked through Jesus to do these wonders, miracles, and signs, but he did it through Jesus. The Pharisees understood this. They, they knew that Jesus performed these miracles because God was working through him. When Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night, in John chapter 3, uh, he knew it. He understood it. Nicodemus said this to Jesus. He goes, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who comes from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. Notice what Nicodemus says in that passage. He says, We know. What does that mean? We know. He didn't say, I know. He says, we know. Who was Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee. He was one of the leaders in the Sanhedrin. He's saying, we as a Sanhedrin, we as a body of religious believers, we know that you're accredited by God. We know that God sent you because nobody can do these things unless God's with him. They knew it, but they rejected him. They knew it, but they didn't accept him. They knew it, but they did not embrace him. He knew the truth, but the majority rejected him. The disciples all understood it. The disciples knew that Jesus was accredited by God. In John chapter, uh, chapter uh, 1, uh, in, in the first, uh, first pages of John, I think it's John uh, 1 or 2, uh, he says that, the, that Jesus performed this miracle at the wedding of Cana. And he went there and performed this, this wedding, and it says that, that he changed the water into wine and it says after he performed this miracle as it said his disciples put their faith in him they saw the miracle they put their faith in jesus what was the difference what was the difference in that the pharisees the religious leaders saw the miracles and the disciples saw the miracles and disciples put their faith in, in him and the pharisees did not their beliefs influenced their behavior What they believed about Jesus influenced what they decided to do. The Pharisees did not allow their belief to influence their behavior. The deeds that Jesus performed should have confirmed that he was indeed God. He was indeed accredited By God, And then Peter challenges his audience. I mean, he just puts it straight out to them. Uh, He he says, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Peter's saying, look, don't take my word for it. You saw him do this yourself. You can testify that he did it because he performed all these things in your presence. You understand this. You can accept this. He's basically saying, don't take my word for it. Go back and check your own testimony, check your own life, that you know these things were true. Listen, there's been many who have claimed to be from God. There's been many who have claimed to be God. But only Jesus is truly God. Only Jesus was truly the one that was accredited by God. And that's part of the message that we share to a world out there that needs to hear it. Jesus was a man approved of God by miracles, signs, and wonders. The second truth. We proclaim that Jesus was crucified. We proclaim that Jesus was crucified. Many people would think that Jesus dying on the cross was a tragedy. They say, what a shame. They would look at Jesus and say, what a wasted life. Here's the greatest person who ever lived, and his life is stuffed out on a cross. Did something go wrong? Was there a misunderstanding there? It's almost as if God's plan A went wrong when Jesus went to the cross. And God didn't have any other way to get out of it. But Peter's clear that the Jews are responsible. He said, you are responsible. This man was handed over to you. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The Jews are responsible But then Peter also acknowledges that God handed him over. God allowed you to do this. And the point is, if God hadn't allowed it, they couldn't have done it. This ties in very well with Scripture is what Jesus said to Pilate as he stood before Pilate at his his trial. Jesus said this, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. If it was not given to you from above. So the question we have to ask is, why did God allow this to happen? Peter says it's because it was God's set purpose. What in the world is God's purpose? Why would God purposely set his son up to be crucified? Why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense. What was the purpose? 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah said these words, the Lord decided... His servant would suffer as a sacrifice to take away the sin and guilt of others. There it is, right there. The Lord decided beforehand that He would, His servant, His Son, would suffer as a sacrifice to do what? To take away this our sin and to take away our guilt. Jesus died on the cross to take away your sins. Jesus died on the cross to take away my sins. Jesus died on the cross to take away your guilt. Jesus died on the cross to take away my guilt. And he did it all because God arranged it. God ordered it. God allowed it. He did it for the good of humanity. He did it because he loved us so much that he wanted to have a relationship with us. So he had to get rid of the stain of sin in our lives, and he did it. There's a story that comes out of uh, the Civil War in Spain between the Nationalists and the Loyalists. The Nationalists are on top of a fortress, and the Loyalists are trying to overtake the fortress. When the leader of the Nationalists gets a phone call, uh, and, and on the phone is his son, and his son says, "They captured me," and he said, "The only way that you could spare my life is to surrender the fortress." And so the dad thought about it for a moment. And then he said, then die like a man. Die like a man. Now we would think, oh, that's harsh. Uh, that, that's difficult for us to understand. But you see, in the, in the, in, in the, in the tune of that, that leader, of that dad, he said it was better for one man to die than all of them to suffer. It was better. And the night before Jesus died... As he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Lord, Father, if there's any way, if there's any way you could take this cup from me, and I can't prove this theologically, but I'm a dad and I have children, and I wonder what I would do if they asked me that question. Don't you know at that moment, don't you know at that time, that the God of the universe, the God of all creation scanned everything He knew, scanned all of the future, all the past, to see if there might be any way, any way, that He could spare His Son. He said, "There is none." And though that word was never uttered to Jesus, what did Jesus say, "Not my will be done, but Your will." Not my will, but Your will. And He surrendered Himself to go to the cross. Because God knew, and Jesus knew, in order to defeat the enemy and preserve the lives of all who would someday come into his kingdom, the Son had to die. He had to give his life for others. Oh, the depths of God's love for you and I. Oh, the depth of God's wisdom that we can never begin to understand. God allowed it to happen and the enemies played right into his hands. They went right along with what God had planned. That doesn't excuse them for their actions. They're murderers. They killed him and they're not excused for their actions. But here's the thing we also share a responsibility in the death of Jesus because if we had not sinned, he wouldn't have had to go to the cross. So we're just as guilty. Yeah, you nailed him there. You put him there because of your sins. And I put him there because of my sins and my disobedience. We are responsible. But here's the thing about it. God took the greatest tragedy and he turned it into the greatest good. He took the tragedy of his own son dying on the cross and he he turned it into life for you and I. That's a supreme example of God's ability to take man's evil intentions and make them serve his purposes. Just think about this. If God could take the death of his son, the crucifixion of his son, the murder of his son and turn it into your good, think what he can do with your failures and your disappointments and your sorrows if you just turn them over to him. There's nothing that God can't fix. There's nothing that God can't handle. If we would just give it over to him. That's part of the message that we proclaim. That's part of the message that we share. That Jesus was crucified for our benefit. For our benefit. There's another truth. We proclaim that Jesus was raised from the dead. Look at verse 24. But. (laughs) I love that. But God raised him from the dead. Freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central foundational truth of Christianity. Listen, folks, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Without the resurrection, all it is is a bunch of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations, but there's no hope. We live our lives and then we die and we become worm food. But because of the resurrection of the dead, there's hope beyond the grave. There's hope beyond this life. It's the central tenet of the Christian faith. There can be little doubt that Jesus died. Listen, the Romans were skillful at murdering people. They were skilled at execution. They knew Jesus was dead. So there's none of this, oh, he just swooned on the cross. He passed out and fainted from loss of blood. And he was resuscitated later on. No, 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 no. He died. He died on the cross. It didn't catch God by surprise that Jesus died. God didn't look, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. Uh, God never has an aha moment, folks. You know, the light bulb going off, he always knows. I know that that defies our ability to understand. God never has an idea. He just doesn't. He he just knows all things. He knew what was going to happen. But notice what else that Peter says. He says, yes, he, he, he was raised from the dead. But notice the next part, freeing him from the agony of death. You see, not only was he free from death, but he was free to ever experience death again. The agony of death. Think of it this way, in in John chapter 11, Jesus tells the story of Lazarus. In that story, Jesus says, loose him and set him free. That's the words used, loose him from that which holds him, loose him from that which binds him. In the same way, when when Jesus was loosed, Jesus was set free from that which bound him, which was death, but here's the difference. Lazarus would die again. Even though he was raised from the dead on that fourth day, he would eventually die again. Why is that? Because he could not escape the agony of death. Jesus Christ died, was raised, never to experience death again because he was set free from the agony of death. Why is that? Because sin is the consequence, or death is the consequences for sin. Jesus Christ was sinless. Therefore, death has no power over him because he's sinless. Death has no hold over him. King David verifies this. David, uh, Peter quotes from King David in verses 25 through 28. And then in verse 29, uh, he's talking about the, he he recognizes that that David is talking about his future future descendant. And then in verse 29, Peter says this, "I, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried in his tomb is here to this day. Here's what Peter's saying, go look for yourself. You can go and examine. You can go and see the tomb of David. Even today, you can see the tomb of King David. You can go, you can examine it. His bones are still there. His body's there. He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about his future descendant because God had promised him that he would always have a descendant on his throne. And David was a prophet. He was a king. He looked forward to the time that there would be that eternal son sitting on the throne. And David looked forward to that. Listen. David is still in his tomb. As is every leader of any religion, any denomination. Buddha is still in the tomb. Confucius is still in the tomb. Muhammad is still in the tomb. And every other leader that you can think of, they are still in the tomb except for Jesus Christ. He's no longer there. He's been risen from the dead. Look at verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. Circle that word, fact. We are all witnesses of the fact. It's fact, folks. It's not fantasy. It's a miracle, not a myth. It's history, not a hoax. You build your life upon facts. You build your life upon, upon truth. That's part of the message that we share, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. Fourth truth, we proclaim that Jesus was exalted. It's not enough to say that Jesus was a man, that Jesus was crucified, and that Jesus was raised from the dead. We also have to get the message that Jesus was exalted. Look at verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God. Exalted to the right hand of God. That means the place of power. That means the place of authority. The right hand is always symbolic. And I'm sorry, left-handed people, but that's just symbolic speaking, okay? It's a way of expressing the place of power, the place of authority. And notice what else. He exalted the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and done. He said... You can verify that he's been given the power. Why is that? Because you see it taking place right here amongst you. What Peter's done, he's come full circle. He said, he's ascended to the throne. He's exalted. God gave him the Holy Spirit. And then God, Jesus, poured out the Holy Spirit upon the believers, which you are experiencing this moment as the Holy Spirit reveals himself to you through this. It all began... When Jesus went to heaven, Jesus said in the Great Commission, right before he gave the disciples that commission, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And what they were seeing at that moment was God's authority coming, or Jesus' authority coming through the disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what they were experiencing. Why was the power given to Jesus? Why was it given? Look at verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's the reason he's been given. He is Lord God Almighty. When he uses that word Lord, in the Bible, it is only used of God. Only used of God. And Peter's saying, this one whom you crucified, God has made Lord He is the Lord. But he also not only say he's the Lord, he said he is the Christ. The Christ is the anointed one, the one who gives salvation. And we know from history, we know from tradition, we know from scripture that only God gives salvation. Therefore, Jesus is God. Because only God gives salvation. This is what he's saying in this passage. We need to understand that he didn't become the anointed one of God upon the cross. He always was the anointed one of God. But now that he's been risen, now that he's exalted, now we see him for what he really was. We understand clearly. It's what Peter's saying. That when you rejected Jesus, you actually rejected God. He said, this one that you rejected... He's actually God. What man intended for evil, God turned into good. Man tried to bring Christ down. God lifted him up. Man tried to humiliate him. God honored him. Man tried to execute him. God exalted him, which is part one of our vision statement. Exalt Christ. Exalt Christ. Exalt Christ. Lift up Jesus. And the Bible says if we are exalt Christ and if we'll lift up Jesus, he'll do the rest. He'll do the rest. He'll draw the people to himself if we exalt Christ. The very one whom the people crucified was made Lord. It was made Christ. Listen, folks. This is is the message we are to proclaim to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Now, I love that song. I love to tell the story. Please do not think I'm berating the story. But I sit there and listen to the, the song. And it says that my theme and glory will be to tell the old, old story. Folks, it's too late in heaven to tell the story. The time to tell the story is Now. Now, when you get to heaven, you don't have to tell the people in heaven about Jesus dying on the cross. They already know it. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory. No. I love to tell the story. It's my theme for His glory. For His glory here on earth. On earth. That's the message we need to proclaim And that's the message I just proclaimed to you. I just proclaimed the gospel message to you. Jesus Christ was a man accredited by God by miracles, signs, and wonders, but you crucified him. You put him on a cross. You're responsible because you rejected the very one whom God made the cornerstone of our faith. But God raised him from the dead. That he would not suffer the agony of death any longer. But God raised him from the dead and he exalted him. He exalted him. He exalted him at his right hand and gave him authority and gave him power and gave him dominion over everything that exists. And he has the power to give you salvation if you will believe. Some of you today need to hear that message. Listen, you know why I know that? At six years old, I walked the aisle of a little old Baptist church to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of my life. I was religious. I knew it. I became a leader in the church. I became a leader in in, in the youth group. Everybody looked at me, preached my first sermon at 16 years old, and I was lost as a goose. But I've been raised in the church. I knew all the ins and outs. I knew the gospel story. It was my theme in glory. I knew it. I could rescue the perishing. I could care for the dying. And the whole time I was doing it, I was lost until 17 years old. I understood I needed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of my life. I repented of my sins and I turned to Jesus. Some of you need to do that today. You need to turn from your religion, turn from your your, your rituals, turn from your, your rules and your regulations and turn to Jesus. Do not count on church membership to put you on the roll in heaven. Don't count on it. Count on your relationship to Jesus Christ. That's the only way you're going to get to heaven. And listen, if there's any church out there teaching anything other than that, it's an anathema to God and may they be cursed. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. Not Bruce Worley. If anyone, if anyone ever stands in this pulpit and preaches a gospel other than the gospel I just shared, let them be cursed by God. Some of you, it would do me no greater pleasure than see you this morning, accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life for the very first time. I don't care if you're nine or ninety; it doesn't matter because they're all precious in his sight. What are you going to do? In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, a time for you to respond to what you've heard. Kip's going to come and lead us. I'm going to offer a prayer. Josh is going to come up. Marcy's going to be here. Just in case you want to talk, just in case you want to pray, just in case you want to receive Jesus, maybe be a part of this fellowship. Would you stand with me, Father? We come before you this morning. Thank you for this opportunity you've given to us to worship you, Father, to exalt Christ above all things. Father, we have done our best this morning to try to proclaim this message. Father, forgive me for my inadequacies. Father, forgive me for my inabilities to communicate effectively. But Father, I pray that even with my my faltering English, Father, my my bad language, my bad dialects, my dangling participles, and all those things, God, my double negatives, God, even though I butcher the English, that Father, you could speak through me to communicate your message to people. you could do exceedingly more than we even think or imagine. Touch people's hearts and lives in this room. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.